The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. As we prepare to open God's Word and study, listen to the first part of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You've commanded Your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping Your statutes. Then I shall be not put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all Your commandments. I will praise You with an upright heart when I learn Your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are a God who has spoken and a God who still speaks. You spoke and everything that we know is created. The world and everything that's in it, the universe, every star and every planet, every mountain, every river, every living being, every living being, You spoke and life came. Long ago, Lord, you spoke to the prophets and you gave us your word. You told us what it is that you would want us to know. You told us who you were. You told us what you expected of your people. You told us how to keep our ways blameless and how to walk according to your truth. And through your apostles, O Lord, you spoke. Giving testimony to your Son, the glory of what He's done for us. And yet, even this very day, Lord, You still speak, for we have this treasure, Your Word. And every time we open it, O oh, great God, we hear from You. You speak to us, Your words. And so at this time in our worship where we open up this book, we provide our undivided attention to it. Lord, we, we plan to hear you speak to us. We come hungry to hear that. We come thirsty for you. Lord, we want to be those uh, who are like what the psalmist describes in the psalm. We want to be those whose, whose way is blameless, who walk in your ways. We want to be those who keep your testimonies and who seek them with our whole heart. And that's what we've come to do this morning. We want our ways to be steadfast because they're anchored in your truth. And so this morning we come fixing our eyes on your commandments, listening for your voice. Speak to us. We're grateful for our pastor who's come and prepared this week. To teach your words. To help us to understand what you mean by what you say. To show us how those words apply to our lives this morning. May your word find a root in our hearts. Grow and bear much fruit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 12, if you would. Or turn on your Bibles to John chapter 12. It's a new world we live in. 
Speaking of that world, I, I got a, a, a new charger for my um, cell phone, which I plug in, charge every night. Um, and there's a light on this one. <clears throat> so I was thinking the other night when I when I woke up and there's this. You you would think that that little teeny light wouldn't be so bright, but the whole room is lit up at night with that. But it's not just that. The landline has a light on it, and the digital clock is lit up, and 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 then the phone itself is blinking. What's that? What's with that? What's that blinking light on a cell phone? I don't even know. And and then Judy's phone is charging in the bathroom, and it's even brighter. So it's like an alien spaceship has landed in our bathroom, and there's this light emanating out from it. And, and <clears throat> Then you go in my office. If for some reason I can't sleep, I go in my office at night, and that's where the router and the modem and all and the printer and all that is. And those that you don't even need to turn the lights on in that room to be able to see. It's an amazing thing all these lights we have. <clears throat> but what you must understand is, in the first century, you knew I was going to get to the sermon eventually, didn't you? In the first century, when Jesus is talking about light and darkness, now they knew dark. We don't ever get to where we get. you got to go way out in the country and hide, and there has to be a cloudy night for you to really understand what darkness is. Or go in a closet, I guess. But <clears throat> when Jesus at the end of verse 35 here says, The light is among you for a little while longer, while you walk in the light, lest... Uh, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. When he said that, they they knew what that meant. That, that dark, darkness we don't necessarily relate to, but they knew exactly. Hey, they didn't have electricity. There was a candle, and at night when that candle went out, it was dark. And so this was a vivid picture that Jesus was sharing with them that they could see completely. When he says, while you have the light, walk in it, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. So that was a very, very graphic picture of Jesus who's talking about himself at this time, what What's going to take place? Because many of them were already walking in the darkness, and we'll see that today. The rejection of the Jewish nation of their promised Messiah is coming to a head. His ministry to them is coming to an end as far as the Gospel of John is concerned. And despite there being some pockets of belief Here and there, the vast majority of Jews seem unable to embrace Jesus Christ with saving faith. The religious leaders are particularly um, intense uh, on furthering their oppression of him. And after this, verses 35 and 36, we do have a clear break with the narrative. He says in 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And at the end of verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
You could take these things many different ways. You could take that as just those few words he just said. Or you could take when Jesus had said his, these things that he's talking about, his entire ministry, all the things that he had said, because it's ending right now. This is the end of his public ministry. Public ministry, public activity. He's moving into private seclusion here in this verse. And John's purpose in all of this changes too. There's a clear change in how we move from this point on in this gospel. These two closing paragraphs, which we'll look at uh, the next couple of weeks, or at some point we'll finish up, form some sort of transition. This is, or you could even call these verses I hear from 37 on a summary of everything that's taken place in the Gospel of John up to this point. Jesus' long ministry toward, several year ministry toward his passion, which we begin to recognize next week. You know next week's Palm Sunday? Yeah, it slipped up on me too. And we know there's that public appearance with Pilate, but he doesn't speak publicly. We know the seven last words said on the cross, but he's he's speaking to to his father or to individuals from the cross even. So there's really no public ministry from Jesus from this point on. Let me just read today's text. When he had said these things, he departed, hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And that word was, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Oh, my. What an indictment. One of the mysteries of the Word of God is this mystery of why some individuals respond to the gospel. Why some individuals uh, respond to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and some don't. It's a mystery in some sense. And yet, uh, in another sense, God's Word gives us a great deal of information as to why this is, why some respond and some don't. Some receive the gospel and some don't. Why some are saved and some aren't. Ultimately, there may be a point of mystery in it all. But in the final analysis, 
It comes down to the grace of God. The unique grace of God or the distinctive grace of God or the electing grace of God. That's what we're dealing with in this passage today as John summarizes the ministry of Jesus up to this point. And he offers three truths here. Three, three truths that deal with the issue of unbelief that uh, are very important to us in our understanding today, our living out the gospel today. For those of you here today who are not believers, this, this, these, these are important points, these three points for all of us today. And the first reason he shares regarding this, that the first truth he declares about this, this unbelief is that it's simply illogical. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The unbelief of the Jews... We have seen over and over and over in this gospel. And as John brings this ministry, the public ministry of Jesus to a close, he shows us again, but with, uh, but with more finality as he goes back to prophecy to deal with this matter. We'll deal with that in a minute. But what he's sharing with us and this, why it's so illogical, that lack of faith is shocking to us considering the quality and quantity of the revelation that they've received. There's another way of saying that. The lack of faith is not due to lack of revelation. You see, the people who are reading this gospel after John wrote it, and were they Jewish? They might have a problem with what has happened because as they look throughout history, they look throughout the nation of Israel and reflected on the fact that God elected Abraham to be their father and gave Abraham these magnificent promises. And those promises included the blessing of his name. Those promises included a land that they were given. Those promises included a people that he was given. Those promises ultimately included worldwide blessing through these people. And so you see a Jew is reading this after John writes it. They might have prop that doesn't fit with God's plan in the Old Testament, God's call of Abraham and everything took, that took place with regard to calling his own people to himself. And yet, they're reading this and they think to themselves, but my people still don't believe. John said as much. Done so many signs before them, they still not believe in him. And all of that is just from the Old Testament perspective. That's from the Jew who just knows the Old Testament. That doesn't have anything to do with Jesus Christ. And then Christ comes. The Messiah came. The one promised there in the Old Testament. And they still didn't respond. 
And so we see the unfaithfulness of the Jews throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah finally comes. They still don't respond. That would be a problem. And what we have on the one hand in this passage, we have the, the, the leaders. We have the uh, educated religious leaders. We have the political leaders. Uh, we have the priests. The, the Pharisees, you have all the, this, the swarm of people on one side who don't believe, and then you have the small group of followers on this side who do believe. We have this large group of people, this nation as such, who's calling him a, a blasphemer. He's not teaching the truth. And then you have this small group of rather insignificant people, fishermen and Others, for the most part, declaring that everything he said is true. He was truth. He was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. They might not have understood all that, that smaller group. They might not have understood all that in its fullest sense. But they were on the way. And this large group, this nation, had walked away. So you, you, can, you can see how someone might raise the question, didn't God speak to our fathers? Didn't God give us revelation of the kingdom that he was going to build? This man, Jesus, said the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation that's going to bear fruit. Could it be that that small little group has the truth and this huge group of Jews don't? They missed out on the truth? I'm sure it all came down to something like this. For they must have seen the issue. They were, they were as pragmatic as we are. Maybe not. But they were pragmatic. You see, it's plain. In America, pragmatism says if it's good, it's successful. You see, that's the false teaching that we learn in our nation. If it's good, then it's successful. In churches, we take it a step further. If it's large and growing fast, it must be of God. And so they're reading this and they're thinking, well, that just doesn't fit. We've got this entire nation, all these people, you know, they've all elected that Jesus is not the truth. Shouldn't that great quantity of educated rulers and leaders and Pharisees, all those people, shouldn't that outweigh this small little group of nobodies? That's the logical thing. If these people are right, these leaders in the nation, this great mass of people are right, then these people are wrong. If this small group of little insignificant people are right, then all these people are wrong. 
And it's a matter of life and death that we're struggling with, so it's important. You can understand why John, as we already know the essential points in this particular gospel, again reminds us what the essential point is. He's talking about unbelief here, but belief is the central point in this gospel. And I'll remind you of that verse again, John 20, uh, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Belief is the point. And the belief is the point as we look at so much unbelief. Three things about this verse, significant facts in this verse. First, he says in verse 37, though he had done so many signs... He'd reached out in, in moving and loving compassion and care uh, for people. He'd helped and he'd ministered to everyone he'd come in contact with. Numerable number of people. <clears throat> in fact, John tells us how many signs he did, so to speak, in chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how much he did. Miracle after miracle, compassion after compassion, help after help, sign after sign, healing after healing, and on and on and on. These signs or these, these miracles came from the very heart of God. Love, compassion, help. And John really only gives us seven. We have the seven signs of John that we've walked through already. First, he turned the water into wine there back in chapter 2. Teaching us that, you know, there's there's a new day coming. There's a new age coming. There's a new dawn being brought by the ministry of the Son. And then... Then there's the healing of the official son, teaching us that healing comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's in chapter 4. Then there's the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 5, teaches us that there's this new power that has come as a result of the Son of God coming. And then there's the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter Six, revealing to us that Jesus is the bread of life. Then there's the walking on water. He walks on water. He teaches his, his disciples that there, there, is no, there is no storm too great that I can't rescue you from. <clears throat> then there's the healing of the man born blind. Chapter 9. Show us that Christ came to give us new eyes. To see it a new way. To provide new light. To guide His people because He is the way. And then there's lastly the climax of it all, the raising of Nazareth. That Jesus says, in that He says, I've come to give birth to life. 
It's amazing. Just those seven, you know, that's convincing. And there's so many more that all the books of the world could not contain them. You would think having seen some of these signs, now granted that only about three of these are in or around Jerusalem. But still, those three would, I would think would be enough to convince somebody. And you know, there's some of you here today that you've read the Scriptures over and over and over again. You still haven't responded to the truth. So he did many signs. Secondly, he said, though he had done so many signs before them. He didn't do them out in the desert so they couldn't see. He didn't end him far off in some obscure corner of the world where nobody would be able to observe these signs and wonders out of sight of people, masses of people. He did them in front of the people. He did them before them where people could see them, where the miracles would be demonstrated and they would demonstrate his deity. And they would help people. Those signs are used to, to, to verify his words. And they would help move people from unbelief to belief. J.C. Ryle says, We err greatly if we suppose that seeing wonderful things will ever convert souls. Thousands live and die in this delusion. So those those signs, seeing those signs, even when we went through Acts and we talked about the apostolic signs, even those things just do nothing but confirm the word. These were the words of Jesus. And the third thing we see in this verse, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The Greek tense of this is a continual belief. Literally, they were not believing on him. Even while he was ministering, even while he was demonstrating his works, even while he was he was revealing to them his great compassion and his power. Their hearts were shut. Closed to the undeniable evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. And is who he says he is. And so John says, wasn't there enough proof? What more could be done? John's really trying to answer, if Jesus was so great, why didn't everybody believe in him? And his conclusion was not that the problem was with Jesus. The problem was the Jewish failure to believe. The problem is with your failure to believe, not with Jesus. He wanted to impress upon his readers as he wrote this gospel. Amazing and confusing fact that men didn't believe on Jesus in spite of everything he did. Their unbelief was unbelievable. John's a little surprised here. Because it just seems illogical. 
truth is, it, it is illogical. But then he takes another step. Gives some explanation as to why they don't believe. First, it's illogical. Secondly, it's odd that they don't believe because it was predicted. Verse 38. Uh, They still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If the answer was not in the ministry of Jesus, not in the actions of Jesus, then maybe maybe you can find the answer to this question of unbelief in the Old Testament. Over and over and over and over, the Old Testament denounces the Israelites because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their failure to respond to God's message. And in the Old Testament, we also see how God overrules the designs of sinful men at some point. Simply because he wants to work out his purpose. So John looks to prophecy and shows where the Jews' rejection of Jesus was foretold back in Isaiah 53. John treats this the same way uh, Paul does in Romans 9 through 11. Not in the detail uh, Paul does, but he treats this the same way, looking back and declaring why people are the way they are, why they reject Jesus. And he does that by looking back the Old Testament. So John quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This was prophecy that showed uh, the attitude of men's hearts toward Jesus. Because Isaiah 53 deals with the vicarious suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read this passage in the next couple of weeks even in more detail. This is that chapter that deals with the suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions. This is the passage that teaches us that he was crushed for our iniquities and that by his wounds we are healed. Hallelujah. The entire passion was brought out of the realm of an accident that happened in the first century. The whole whole trial and, and suffering and death of Jesus Christ was brought about by what these people would declare some accident of history when actually it was declared some 700 years before. Paul uses these same words in Romans 10, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? There's a 
Anglican priest in the early part of the last century, Edwin Hoskins, who says the purpose of his final summary of the public ministry of Jesus is not to deny the whole tenor of his narrative, but to point out that the rejection of the Messiah by his own people ought not to surprise those familiar with Old Testament scriptures. So John's sort of sticking it to him right here, using Isaiah. Now, haven't you noticed, it seems that the apostles knew the Old Testament better than the Pharisees. It's hard to understand. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, the signs were the, for the fulfillment of the signs were for the purpose of fulfilling the scriptures that had already been declared, had already been prophesied that Israel would not believe. What is happening, John says, is predicted. You know, Jesus, uh, when he's talking about Judas in Matthew 26, he uses these words, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So that's true in Isaiah 53, too. It's written of him, and that's how the Son of Man goes. Those promises are fulfilled. Now, in this case, Jesus says the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. He's talking about Judas here. But that first phrase is so important. And so John tells us, though he'd done so many signs before them, they still did not believe so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And that word is, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What in the world does that mean? Simply put, he means, who has believed what we've been teaching about Jesus? Because Isaiah's been talking about him for quite a few chapters at this point. And then to whom is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is declared that some commentators, some theologians would say the arm of the Lord is Jesus. I don't believe that's the fact. The arm of the Lord is a figure of the power of God. The works of God. And how is God's works, uh, power, manifested in the ministry of Jesus Christ? By those signs that he's been talking about. So who has believed the message that we have been giving concerning him? And to whom has the significance of these signs been revealed? This is, this is John's using his own amazement over the unbelief of a nation. It's an expression of amazement that there are so few who have responded to the message that Jesus has given. It's also amazement that they have not responded to the display of the might and power of God through Jesus. Now, of course, there's a clue here as to why they haven't responded. 
And it's in that one word, revealed. It's a pretty good clue. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, it's not our intelligence. It's not our education. It's not our upbringing. The reason why some respond and why others don't is not due to the fact that they have great insight. It's not due to the fact of their own judgment. It's not our wisdom that's the reason why we respond and others don't respond. What is it that makes believers out of individuals? Falls on one word. To those whom has it been revealed. No one can truly understand that Jesus is the Lord. No one can respond to the message and teaching that he gave. No one can see the significance of those mighty signs that were performed. Except those to whom the meanings of those things have been revealed. Can you not see that the apostles and all of Scripture, friends, listen, not just the apostles and not just specifically the apostle John in this case, but all of Scripture affirms the necessity of the initial work of God in the human heart. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Another truth about their unbelief. It was predicted in Isaiah that God has not revealed the significance of the ministry of the Lord, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus to this nation, to these people. Simply put, I'm going to paraphrase it my way. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Who had believed what he heard from what they had heard from our lips and the arm of the Lord, the mighty, the power of almighty God displayed in the signs that Jesus performed. Who who understood and took to heart the significance of all this? Well, the ones that took to heart the significance of all this are the ones to whom it has been revealed. And that prophecy, Isaiah 53, verse one has now been fulfilled. For nearly everybody failed to receive Jesus with genuine faith. Now, you might be saying at this point, well, good, I'm off the hook because God hadn't revealed it to me. It's another truth in Scripture which... That doctrine's not here. We don't have time to go through it all. Human responsibility for sin and unbelief is never excused in the Bible. That's the mystery. That God clearly said in Isaiah and here in John to have had a hand in human actions in terms of blinding eyes and hardening. In fact, the word hardening in the Old Testament is petrifying. Human hearts in order that Israel would not come 
to healing. That's indisputable. We see that in Scripture. We just looked at it in Isaiah 53, verse 1. But that original pronouncement in Isaiah was also said in context of Israel's own disobedience. So Isaiah is saying this looking forward, but he's also saying this looking backward. The context here is Israel's own disobedience. The action of God did not excuse Israel, and it doesn't excuse you either. When William Hendrickson says, man never sins cheaply, it costs, it's expensive. Nevertheless, the responsibility and the guilt remains entirely on his side. And as it was with Pharaoh, so it also was with Israel. Remember Pharaoh back in Exodus God hardened his heart so he wouldn't relent. You remember that? The Bible said God hardened his heart so he wouldn't do what Moses commanded that he would do. Let my people go. Let God hardened his heart. But Pharaoh was responsible for his sin. Look at that further. Third suggestion was that unbelief was a direct result of God's revelation. He takes it a step further. It's a little more challenging, but he takes it a step further. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, they could not believe. Literally, the Greek says, for this reason, they could not believe. Because again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes. He hardened their hearts. I want you to get this, but it's important to understand um, Isaiah 6. That's where this comes from. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. It comes from Isaiah 6.10, which says, Make the heart of the people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Now, Isaiah chapter 6 is that passage where Isaiah... It describes his calling, how God has called him to himself. And in that description of his call, he has this magnificent vision of the glory of God, of the vision of the Lord. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah was a great king. One of the great kings. He'd done so much for Israel. But in the end, toward the end of his life, pride and arrogance took over. We don't know any politicians that that would, we could describe that way. But in Uzziah's life, pride and arrogance entered his life and it, and it went downhill from there. Israel and Isaiah himself were discouraged over the turn of events regarding their nation as a result of Uzziah's sin. 
So Isaiah is given this magnificent vision of the glory of God. It's possible that he means he simply sees the Lord as the glory of God, the Father. In light of the context here, I'm not sure that's the case. John is inspired to write something here that's very important to us. I think in this vision, this was a vision where he says, I saw the Lord. So he couldn't see God even in a vision. If someone looks on God, they die, right? Moses instructed us of that. So it seems to me that if he sees the Lord, he doesn't just see the glory of the Lord because he said, I saw the Lord and you can't look on God. And so I think Isaiah is seeing Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He saw the word with a capital W on his throne before he was ever born. That's what John is declaring here. And as this chapter unfolds, Isaiah is given the message that he's to preach. I won't go through it all. Some of you, most of you probably know that story. And, and you think that Isaiah is being given by God the message to preach. You'd think it'd be, uh, that everybody's discouraged in this nation. You'd think that, that it would be a message of encouragement. You'd think that it would be a message of support and a message to... An invitation to follow God, that the Messiah is coming. Those who believe in Him have everlasting life. You think that would be the message that He gives Isaiah to proclaim. But it's not that encouraging. Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And so what's the message, Lord? What do you want me to say to the people? Verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And then notice the next words in verse 10. Make the heart of the people dull. Some of your translations say fat. Make the heart of the people fat. That's not a blessing. That's a curse. And their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the Lord God of the universe saying this. Dull the hearts of these people. Make it so they can't see. Make it so they can't hear. And John is affirming that that truth has happened. Declare to them how they won't be healed. What an amazing message. A message that the God of grace would declare the God of grace should say to his own people, Israel, there's no hope. 
You live under divine retribution because of your wayward ways, your continued sinfulness. Prevent them from responding. That's amazing. Jesus, in Matthew 13, we don't have it up on the screen. He used these words too. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he goes on and shares more of Isaiah. The Apostle Paul, Acts 28, refers to the people he's preaching to the same way. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. What's the title of this message? Unbelief. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed, after, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, fat, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus, John, the Apostle Paul say all the same thing. And they affirm that Isaiah 6 is dealing with the nation Israel. Plumer says, Grace may be refused so persistently as to destroy the power of accepting it. I will not leads to I cannot. In other words, you say long enough, I will not, I will not, I will not come. I will not receive Christ. I will not respond to the gospel. I will not be saved. Eventually it will be, I cannot respond. I cannot be saved. He's hardened your heart. What a serious message. If we continue to reject the message of the Word of God, there will come a time when God hardens your heart and hope is lost. J.C. Ryle says, Those whom he has said to harden and blind will always be found to be persons whom he has previously warned, exhorted, constantly summoned to repent. And never is, is he said to harden and blind and give men up to judicial hardness and blindness till after a long course of warnings. This is certainly the case with Pharaoh and the Jews. There comes a place where God will strengthen us in our decision. You understand that? There comes a place where God will strengthen you in your decision, whether it's for Christ or against Christ. Ultimately, before God, you get what you want. And those who push Jesus away will not have to endure eternity with Him. 
And lastly, John says, Isaiah said these things. We didn't even get to that verse. Forget it. No, don't forget it. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is affirming that he saw the glory of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 6. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Speaks for itself. Aren't you glad because we're out of time? Now, if their belief was secrecy, he said, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear they did not confess it. If it was secret, how did John know? Well, you may have known because amongst this group of people was Joseph of Arimathea, or Nicodemus. They were among that group. Maybe they told John later. This book was written long after the fact happened. He may have even at this point been a part of their inner circles and knew their feelings at this time. But what criticism? They loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. John's verdict on their weak, timid faith And we shouldn't lose that point on ourselves either. Believing in Jesus can cost a lot. Is it possible to be a secret follower of Jesus? That's another question. I would think only temporarily. Either the secrecy cancels out the belief or the belief cancels out the secrecy. I did a funeral yesterday. I was thinking during that funeral, unbelief is a terrible thing. Particularly so when one thinks they believe. Our churches are full of thousands and thousands of people who have some satisfaction of their stance with God, but don't have the blessed assurance Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. What a great foretaste. Just like the Jewish nation here at the end of Jesus' public ministry. These were the orthodox, these were the educated religious rulers. If anyone could interpret the Old Testament prophecy, you would think it would be them. Especially the prophecy regarding the Messiah. These were the Sunday school teachers. But to them it had not been revealed. There is a plus side to this. While it's sad and mysterious for us, it's also true that we see God's purpose in all of this. And that God's purpose is plain. What God is doing in all of this is very, very clear. Had the Jews joyfully received the truth of the gospel, it's hard to see how it would have gone out to all nations. 
When the Jews rejected it, it became a world religion. And we cannot think that this took place apart from the will of God. Listen to these words from A.W. Pink. They preferred the goodwill of other sinners above the approval of God. Oh, the short-sighted folly of these wretched men. Oh, the madness of their miserable choice. Of what avail would the good opinion of the Pharisees be when the hour of death overtook them? In what stead will it stand them when they appear before the judgment throne of God? What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That unbelief is part of an entire nation's life, except for, with just a few exceptions. That unbelief might be a part of your life as well. What should it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? Trust Jesus today. Let's pray. We close with a song, and during this song, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. And we encourage you, uh, during this song, should you have questions about the gospel, about what's going on in your life right now, anything that's been said today, or you just need somebody to pray with you, make your way to the back during this song. It'll be a blessing to you to do that. Father, thank you for your word, the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that we might turn away from our selfishness and turn toward you. And that as your church, we might leave this place and proclaim these truths for the glory of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.